podcast a podcast where we chat true crime conspiracy theories paranormal stories folklore urban legends a little bit of this and to be honest a little bit of that every week so that you can have a distraction from everyday life i'm one of your hosts alex and i'm joined by the lovely the amazing co-host of we're distractions podcast who is christy and oh thank you for those compliments oh you're welcome just mm, eat it up Mm, Yes, amazing. Before we dive into this week's episode and our distractions, I do have a little bit of housekeeping to attend to or to address. So I just want to give a little reminder that we will have another super secret podcast guest on our weird spam series, which as a reminder, is available for our top tier folks aka our $5 USD a month patrons. It's a series where essentially we read the spam emails we get and have a few laughs while doing so. And yeah, it's a good time. We've so far had all the ladies from Pineapple Pizza Podcast on. We are hopefully going to have them on again, but you won't know when that will be. So do, 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 do. But yeah, it's a good time. Everyone has fun. Everyone laughs. Would recommend to a friend, hence why we're telling you today. But enough chit-chat about our sales pitching. Christy, what do you need a distraction from this week? Well, this week's distraction is a couple things, because my life is just always stressful, it seems. Currently, I am doing laundry, and my duvet is sitting in my room, and that is like the epitome of what I hate doing, is putting the duvet back in the duvet cover, and also my cat trying to help me make the bed, and it is the worst. Also, I just had to fill my car up yesterday with gas, and gas is fucking outrageous. It was on empty. It was ninety dollars. Oh my it was goodness! Ridiculous. Oh my, that is a bundle of first world problems and awfulness. Yeah, and then my mother was trying to set me up on a blind date, and I'm like, this is stressful. Why you didn't tell me that before we started recording, Christy? We'll discuss it later. But yeah, okay, just, okay, a, okay. a couple things. I'm like, that's why I need to distract from all of that. Okay, Alex, what's your distraction? Uh, well, and I also forgot to mention that this is a paranormal episode. So I am I am so happy because Halloween is unfortunately over. But here at Weird Distractions, we celebrate ghosty, spooky, ookiness 24-7, 365. However, what I'm about to tell you is utterly terrifying and I'm not here for it. So this week, I decided to go the news article route because, I mean... Why not? And I found an article by HuffPost, specifically written by David Moyi on October 21st, 2021. And the title of the article is Fish Found with Parasite That Eats Its Tongue and Then Becomes Its Tongue. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is terrifying. I'm going to need to talk about ghosts after this because this is... Um, So to read the article directly, quote, Earlier this week, officials with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department took a photo of a strange parasite resembling a pill bug that is also known as the snapper chalking or choking 
Yeah, choking, snapper choking. Snapper choking is a pod, according to San Antonio ABC affiliate KSAT. Uh, the article further reads, the fish containing the parasite was found at Galveston Island State Park. Officials jokingly suggested on Facebook that the creature was a Martian before offering the true science surrounding the crustacean. The tongue-eating parasite attaches itself to the fish's mouth and then replaces the tongue, according to the Houston Chronicle. So... This is horrifying. First and foremost, parasites, any anything I can't really see with my own eyes or anything that just kills you off immediately terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me. Yes, like I see in movies and stuff, I have a visceral fear of tapeworms. Oh. Oh, tapeworms, freaking. Um, like parasites in your brain, like, oh. Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. So, yeah, that that's. That's what I need a distraction from. I need to talk about ghosts because of that. Ghosts will chill me out. Fair, 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 fair. So without further ado, I think we should just get into it because I, the more I think about a parasite that becomes a tongue, I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. Okay, give us all the spookiness. All right. So as mentioned, even though our beloved Halloween has passed, it doesn't mean that we're done talking about spooky ghosty stuff because that is basically a majority of our podcast is ghosty shit. So this week, we're going to hop on over to Athens, Ohio, to discuss a once former asylum turned campus complex. The former hospital known as the Athens Lunatic Asylum is now known today as the Ridges. This place, along with other locations on campus, seem to be packed with paranormal reports. As always, we will have to go over the history before we chat about the reported haunts, so get your textbooks ready because we're going to get into it. Yay, my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) So the history of the Athens Asylum takes us all the way back to 1864, when the Ohio legislature gave the green light for an asylum to be built in southeastern Ohio in the now-known Athens area. The original site for this asylum started off with 141 acres, and it was thought that the facility would, at some point, become self-sufficient, meaning there would be grounds for livestock, farm fields, gardens, greenhouses, and more. Once the green light was given, Levy T. Schofield was hired as the architect. Levy was supposedly influenced in his design by Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. Dr. Kirkbride was a hotshot 19th century physician who people seemed giddy for due to his book on mental hospital designs. Levy took this Kirkbride's influence and, when building the hospital, made it to have an administrative building with two wings, one for females and the other for males. Levy further made the administrative a building about 853 feet long, 60 feet wide, and used red bricks fired from the clay dug on site. According to the Legends of America website, there were seven cottages also built on site. There was room to house approximately 572 patients in the main building, and I'm unsure how many the cottages would be able to house. I'm going to speculate that the cottages would maybe add for over 600 total patients between the administrative building a.k.a. the main building and the cottages. However, we don't really. I wasn't able to find out specifically. Apparently, Levy tried to 
double the recommendation size that Dr. Kirkbride had suggested. I think this may be due to the notion that if they double the space, they would be able to avoid overcrowding of patients, which we know is was a common issue and, well, is a common issue for a lot of hospitals and institutions, but especially back then, that was one of the biggest concerns was overcrowding. I feel like it doesn't matter how much square footage you're going to add to a building, you're always going to be overcrowded because you get more space, you add more people, and then should they get overcrowded again? Well, yeah, and not only that too, but this is during a time where literally if you, I don't know, if someone didn't like you, they could say, oh, this person should be in the asylum. And if enough people agreed, you'd be hospitalized or you'd be hospitalized for having your freaking period, right? Yeah. So basically three quarters of the population could go in there if they really wanted to. So yeah, exactly. So doubling the recommended amount kind of makes sense. The original 141 acres jumped to 1,019 acres, which allowed for the previously hoped self-sufficiency to take place. The hospital doors opened on January 9th, 1874 as the Athens Lunatic Asylum. However, it would change names a numerous amount of times. For example, it went by the Athens State Hospital, the Southwestern Ohio Mental Health Center, the Athens Mental Health Center, and more. Besides all of the name changes, the hospital serviced a wide range population of patients. Some of the patients included Civil War vets, children, seniors, the homeless, teens, violent criminals, and more. According to the Legends of America website, patients would be admitted under a wide range of diagnoses, such as minor emotional distress to the most severely mentally unwell. Other notable admissions also included things such as epilepsy, menopause, tuberculosis, addictions, and general ill health. And because we are talking about an asylum from the 1800s, you bet that they practice some pretty awful things, such as lobotomies. So for those that are new to the show, or perhaps new to the dark, weird side of history, a lobotomy is a neurosurgical operation that involves permanently damaging parts of the brain's prefrontal lobe, according to the Live Science article by Tanya Lewis. Lobotomies aside, the hospital was also known to use hydrotherapy, electroshock, restraints, and psychotropic drugs to treat their patients. In terms of what were the most common admissions, I'll break some down from the 1870s. So for those that identified as being a woman, the top three admissions were what we now know as being postpartum, what is, I don't know, labeled as change of life, and then menstrual derangements. I'm sorry, what the fuck is change of life? I have literally no idea. It was just listed as change of life with no further explanation. Okay, whatever that happens to be. I feel as though back then it wasn't, they just kind of put these women in there be like, okay, well, you can deal with it here. That's it. Like, you can just go here and that's fine. They probably went in there and it got worse or it didn't help them whatsoever and they probably just never left, which is super depressing. Exactly. So, for those that identified as men, the top two admissions were excessive masturbation and alcohol addiction. Okay. Not to be frank, but yes, people need to have an orgasm once in a while, but can't be hating on people. It's just interesting that there's two various levels of, okay, so you're yanking your chain too much and you're drinking too much. <laughs> it's just it's like, hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too, anytime that anyone was considered quote unquote too much, whether they were dealing with an addiction or, you know, based on the personality or what have you, they would just shove them into these kind of institutions and be like, okay, now, you, you know, you, you get better or you can stay here. And that was it. I mean, obviously, we don't have access to the treatment plans or what have you from Athens, but it's just 
It's interesting. And I'm interested to hear maybe someday about how those kind of people were treated and like what kind of treatment plans they were provided based on what they went in for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, being too much for certain things, that's where they put them to deal with them. That's not really the way to go about this. Yeah. So based on what I gather, treatment intensity was dependent on what the patient needed and the form of illness they were struggling with. So if you were an excessive masturbator, you might have a different treatment plan than someone who is going through postpartum because obviously they're way too different freaking things. But do you catch my drift? Like kind of similar to mental health related treatment in Ontario, you know, you can go to a depression specific treatment or you could go to like an anxiety specific treatment. They had different treatments, but what I'm curious in, and unfortunately I don't have the answer is how different were those treatments? Because as we both know from covering other asylums and you know, other institutions like this from that kind of time period, a lot of staff got burnt out. And I kind of doubt that they were really following through with treatment plans all the time. So I kind of imagine that maybe I'm speculating a little bit that they would eventually just get all muddled and everyone got the same treatment, even though not everyone needed that treatment or that treatment wasn't working for them. Do you catch my drift? Yeah, staff would get burnt out at asylum back then. And patients would be getting treated for a same things when their stuff's completely different. Or there's patient abuse or patient neglect, all those different things. Yes, I would hope that their treatments would be separate, but yeah, we don't know what exactly what they were. We will never know. Exactly. So as years passed, more buildings and additions were built onto the property. For example, a new farm office, amusement hall, laundry building, power plant, and firehouse, among others, were added. There were also additional wards and residencies kind of mushed in together as well. Jumping to the 1950s, it's been documented that the hospital consisted of 78 buildings and was treating up to approximately 1,800 patients. Ten years later, in the 1960s, it had been documented that the facility was approximately six, oh gosh, this is a big number, 660,888 square feet and was now treating up to 2,000 patients. Now, some may be wondering, did anyone die at the hospital? Quick answer, yes. And there was a designated total of three graveyards on site for patients who had passed away that were reportedly not claimed by their families. Those that have heard stories of how these former asylums used to operate may have already guessed that the Athens Hospital didn't necessarily have the greatest tracking record for their burials. If you did guess this, you're right. So it turns out that there is only one register that exists today, which according to the Legends of America website only consisted of 1,700 to 2,000 burials, which, I mean, doesn't, I don't think that adds up. I think there's probably a lot more that just are unfortunately not documented and or accounted for. Oh, for sure. And I always find that so sad when there's asylums and I get no one claims them or they came in that way and just no one happens to follow up, but they just die. And then they're like, let's go bury George in the backyard of the asylum and we just grow a cemetery. Like, it's so sad. Well, and it's just... I mean, obviously we weren't there. We don't know how the burial process went, but I can't imagine anything spectacular was done for these patients, especially if no one else was there to be there for them, right? Like family or friends and what have you. It was only in 1943 when the hospital began using names on the tombstones. So I think before they were just unmarked or potentially marked by numbers. It's very depersonalizing. I think that's what makes this whole thing and, you know, other hospitals like this and other institutions like this very 
devastating and just kind of a stain on dark history because not only were these people sometimes just dumped in these institutions because they were too much for society or they weren't contributing to society at a level that everybody else was, but essentially these people just became numbers at the end of the day, whether they were numbers while they were living or basically numbered when they were gone. It's just... I don't know. It just doesn't sit right. No, yeah, it definitely gives a dark history overlay on that kind of stuff. And even as a side note, even today, like thinking now, we're still keeping track of the whole residential school stuff. And like the most recent number is like 7,000 on those children. It becomes nothing. And you're like, well, this is a big part. Like, how can that be nothing back then? And it's so big now. Well, not only that, too, but then it's okay. But who was who were these people? What were their names? Yeah. When you when you go to a graveyard now that maybe hasn't been around for that long and you see people's tombstones and what have you, you kind of get a taste of who that person was. Like you have a name, you have a birth date, you have a date when they passed away, you know, their gravestone might have like a little memorial picture or something on it, right? These people, including the children at the residential schools and God knows how many other unmarked graves across the world, you don't get that. You, you just, it, it, it's just... You just don't get that personalization anymore. You don't get that, oh, that was so-and-so, and and they were known for this, or they were known for that. Like, the remembrance piece of it all just out the window, which is devastating and kind of doesn't allow for a proper grievance of anything, really. It's definitely devastating, and it's like people become a number. Yeah. So, according to the Legends of America website, by 1993, the then-named Athens Center closed down, with the remaining patients being moved to another facility. The property itself seemed to be left alone for about seven years before the buildings on site were restored for future use by Ohio University. The property name would change again and be referred to as The Ridges sometime in 2001 and be used to create a space for for a museum, offices, and overall classroom spaces. I read a couple of different posts that claimed that the name The Ridges was from a 1984 naming contest. So someone was like, oh, we should name this The Ridges. And they're like, that sounds good. Flap a sticker on that. Let's call it, let's call it The Ridges. How official. Yeah, that's that's what I'm assuming happened, like exactly to a T what happened, but I mean, who knows. So from what I gathered, a lot of the OG buildings remained. However, I saw that one of the cottages referred to as Cottage B, aka one of the TB wards, was torn down in 2013 due to students exploring it, which was deemed unsafe. From what I've gathered, the university basically absorbed the former psychiatric hospital as part of their campus, which as some can picture it, was basically taking over a former small town. Picture, if you're from Ontario, Canada, it's like the Scarborough in the GTA. Like, it's just this little piece of the area and it gets overcompassed by something bigger, aka the university. But even in in of itself, it's a pretty large piece of it. Very sad, it took it over, but it'd be cool for just seeing the architecture and the old stuff of the buildings if it kept it somewhat for the school. Yeah, Yeah, and I think it's better than absolutely tearing it completely down. And I know some people have different thoughts on this because I've read when it comes to other, you know, asylums or institutions or jails or what have you, you know, people will question, okay, well, do we want to keep that place standing as is because of all the horrors and awful things that happened and all the trauma. But there's a part of me, and I hope I don't get read for this, but there's a part of me that thinks that we should keep it as a reminder of, okay, but this is what we were capable of. And this is what humans did. And we need to grow apart. Like we need to grow away from that kind of treatment. Right. And not only that too, but I'm a sucker for like old architecture. So it's, yeah. And I'm, so what I'm trying to say is I'm glad that Ohio University kept 
from what I read, most of the buildings from the original hospital. Oh, yeah, it's one thing to have the literature piece of the history, but then to have that legit historic piece of the buildings, that's something to look back on. And yes, something's in dark history, but it's important to shed light on that. And then you can see it firsthand, like this is what this was, or this is where this was. Unfortunately, bad yeah. things happened. Yes. But yeah. again, you learn from it. Exactly. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) So before we dive into the reported spooks of this location, I want to first name two of the more publicly known patients of Athens. First being a man by the name of Billy Milligan. The name may ring a bell to listeners as Netflix recently released a docuseries about him called The 24 Faces of Billy Milligan. To summarize Billy quickly, he was arrested at the age of 22 in 1977 for kidnapping, robbery, and rape of three women around the Ohio State campus, according to an article by Esquire. During his trial, Billy noted that he was not responsible for the crimes and seemingly blamed it on his alter personalities. Billy noted that his alter, Reagan, was responsible for the robbings, while Atlanta was responsible for the rapes. Billy would be found not guilty due to reason of insanity on December 4th, 1978, and was dubbed the first trial in which a defendant was not found guilty due to multiple personality disorder, which is now known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. Billy ended up serving time at multiple state psychiatric hospitals, such as Athens. Although we could go on about Billy, I'm going to jump to another individual from Athens Hospital that we need to cover. A 53-year-old patient by the name of Margaret Schilling did not show up for dinner on December 1st, 1978. Margaret supposedly was playing hide-and-seek with other patients prior to dinner, so staff assumed that she maybe got lost during the game. Despite this, there have been varying reports that staff didn't initially look for Margaret, or that they did, but given the time of day and year, they were unsuccessful at first in finding her. It wasn't until approximately six weeks later when a reported maintenance worker supposedly found Margaret's deceased body in a closed-off portion of the facility, according to the Murder Murder News article. She was found within an unused and reportedly locked room, naked, with her folded clothes laying beside her. Margaret's cause of death was heart failure. However, some speculate that she probably succumbed to the cold temperatures of the ill-heated room. This speculation was formed due to Margaret's body laying directly where the sunlight was seen to come in via the window in the room, leading people to think that she was trying to warm up by this method. Margaret's body was removed from the room, and workers were staffed in cleaning it up shortly after. However, there appeared to be a large stain where Margaret once laid, which supposedly can be seen on the floor to this day. Now, some may wonder how this all scientifically could happen, aka how could the stain kind of be laminated onto this floor for many, many years? The Soul of Athens website broke down the stain situation, where they first mentioned how she was found lying on a concrete floor naked for over a month. Then, with her body removed, acidic cleaning products were supposedly used to clean the area. That's just so sad. You just lay there for that, like, let lay there for that long, and then you have to clean that up after. You couldn't have done that beforehand. Well, so yeah, they found her six weeks later, and then I don't know if they immediate cleaned up or what. I mean, they would have to probably leave some time for investigation i guess i don't really know but basically the chemicals must have had a reaction with the fluids from the decomposition which basically acted like a lamination for a lack of a better term 
for the stain. To quote another website, the paranorms about the situation, quote, a 2008 study from the Journal of Forensic Science brought up an intriguing conclusion of saponification. Schilling's body fat turned to soap during her decomposing phase, creating the mark on the concrete floor. And this is going to be really gross and I should have done a trigger warning, so I'm so sorry, but trigger warning. Basically, Margaret's body during the decomposition process turned in like the fat her body fat turned into like a soap-like substance and then when you added the acidic chemicals from the cleaning products they mix together and just kind of enforce the stain to stick in the concrete does that make sense i mean i don't know that i shouldn't ask this question because i probably won't have all the full answers because i'm not a scientist don't know if you know this but does does that make sense to you Yes, that makes sense. And very sad that there's now a permanent mark on the floor of where her body laid. Well, not only that too, but it's sad that they didn't find her. Like, I don't know. It's hard because I read some reports and some stories that said, oh, the hospital staff didn't really give a shit because they're so short staffed. And for six they months? Just, well, no, it was six weeks. Oh, for six weeks though? Yeah. And that's the thing, right? And I know... We weren't there. We can't judge heavily. But in the same sense, if that is true, if staff are just kind of like, oh, we've lost another one. Oh, well, shrug. We're burnt out. We just want to go home. It's just it's unfortunate. Then it's another process of depersonalization. However, what I find kind of eerie is that I did read and I mentioned it that the room that she was found in was locked. I don't know if it was locked from the inside or if it was locked from the outside. But if it if that is true, because I, also this this story could be muddled with a bit of local lore. But if the whole her being locked in this room is true, it makes you wonder, okay, is this foul play or was this an accident? Because, you know, she was playing hide and go seek this, that and the other. Did she accidentally lock herself in this room? Was she hiding from somebody and that's why she locked the, the door or did somebody lock her in? Yeah, someone could have locked her in. She could have been there for how long? Or even say another scenario, she had already died and someone found the body and then locked the door, leaving her there and being like, oh, well, that's another one. I'm going to leave it there for now. But yeah, it's that mm. other way. She yeah. was forgotten and no one cared. And it was six exactly. Months. Yeah. Exactly. So according to some, there is a legend that if someone touches the stain left by Margaret, don't know why you would, but hey, this is the local lore, I guess, they will die a horrible death shortly after. This kind of reminds me of one of our midweek mini spook episodes about the local lore for Christy and I of Mary Rutherford's grave, as it basically has the same touch and die legend behind it. First of all, that's a terrible legend, and you don't want that to happen. And second of all, why are you touching that? That's just nasty. Yeah, I don't I don't understand people. This is why we have a podcast, because we basically don't understand people, but want to talk about all the weird things that people do. Anyways, I wasn't able to find a find a grave website or anything on the newspaper website that I access about Margaret. I'm not saying it's not true, but I wish I was able to find more about her individually. So I wasn't able to find a birth date. I wasn't able to find a gravestone. I wasn't able, like, I could not find anything about Margaret, which once again... It's very depersonalizing. All we have is this really horrible story about how she was found dead and how there's a stain in Athens of her body. It's just, I wish there was something more we could cling to or more that we could talk about when it comes to Margaret Schilling other than that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like that gives my backbone to the story as if 
it possibly could be Laura now because is it truly that's what the statement on the floor is on the floor for? If there's no information about her at all, is it really true? Or there is no details about her, and which is really disappointing. I mean, it was the 70s. I'm not saying that that's a good reason why there maybe isn't as much documentation on her. But I will say I'm wondering if maybe there's just nothing that's been released to the public. I don't I don't know. It's It's one of those things where... It's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, is this legit or not? I'm not saying I don't necessarily believe that it didn't happen, but I would just wish there was more of a way that we could honor her memory, maybe. That's maybe what I'm trying to get at. Because right now, we don't even know where she was born. We don't know where she's buried. We don't even know really who she was other than this story of, you know, her getting lost or, you know, whatever happened. And the only part that people hyper focus on is oh well now there's a stain on the floor in Athens and if you touch it you die it's like well but who was Margaret as a person so now let's talk about the haunts let's talk about the spooky ookiness so considering Athens was operating as a health facility for approximately 120 years it may come as no surprise that people both speculate and report hauntings occurring even to this day do 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 we really need a soundboard, like just something I can press and we get like spooky, spooky sounds. We'll invest. we'll invest in that later. But regardless, not only that, but the imprints left behind after all of those years with all the individuals that walked in and out of its doors, I'm sure has left something manifesting in that location. Firstly, we're going to go back and discuss Margaret Schilling, as she is a reported entity that is seen around the area. Referencing the Haunted Journeys website, there is an apparition of a woman who some believe is Margaret, who is said to be staring out of the window in the building. The window belongs to the same room that Margaret was supposedly found in, and some claim that when they do see this apparition, it appears as if Margaret is trying to escape. So that's spooky. That's creepy. Don't really like that. No, no thanks. Nope. Mm -mm. Margaret has been seen in other parts of the building. However, it seems as though the most common and eerie place that she is seen is at that window. Other creepy happenings include the following. Reports of people hearing disembodied voices in the night. These include sounds of screams, moans, groans, and general sounds you basically don't want to hear. People also report to hear what sounds to be rattling door handles or squeaking which people have referred to as being from former gurneys. You just imagine being late at class or like in a lab or something, doing something and you hear all this going on. No, 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 no. Yeah. You're like quietly sitting in a lecture and then you hear this like gurney roll by up to the door. Yeah, no, absolutely no, thank you. Uh, people have reportedly seen strange lights or orbs around the facilities. People have also claimed to see shadow figures or what appears to be people walking around, even though there is no one actually there upon further investigation. The creepiest report comes from the basement, because where else but the basement? People essentially have claimed to witness what appears to be apparitions of patients who appear to be shackled to the walls within the basement. So people go down to the basement and it looks like there is someone shackled to the wall and it's like they get closer to it and it's it, it's 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 a ghost and it's it's nothing it's no one it's no one real but isn't that creepy if i walked down that's what i saw i would turn right around and go back upstairs I'm like nope bye it's also not just the buildings that are reportedly haunted and super creepy the cemeteries are also supposedly active as well people have claimed to see shadow figures and strange lights around the cemeteries at night 
Well, very fascinating. Yes. I also saw that people suspect a witch's meeting point to be at one of the cemeteries because there is an area that possesses a circle shape somewhere. However, this may just be more local lore than anything else. And to be honest, like, if it is a meeting point, let them meet. Like, don't bug them. Like, I don't know. I don't know else to put it. If it is a witch's meeting point, cool. Great. I don't... I don't know. I, I kept seeing it, so I thought, okay, I might as well include it because obviously it's a part of the information that should be stated. But I didn't really know what to what to think of it. What do you think? Yeah, there's a circle somewhere. Don't interrupt the meet and greet. Let them have a little security board party of. <laughs> it's just a bunch of just a bunch of witches and warlocks sitting around in a cemetery with a charcuterie board, talking potions and shit. I love it. I'd be down for it. If we if any li- kind of party. Yeah, if any witches are listening, please invite us. Not that we have much to contribute, but hey, we can bring cheese. We are cheese connoisseurs, so hit us up. Anyways, in terms of further haunts, I did want to expand to other parts of Ohio University in Athens just to shed a light on them because I didn't want to just hyper-focus on the ridges, aka the old asylum, since it seems as if the whole Athens campus is stupidly haunted. So what I've previously mentioned is the former main building of Athens Asylum or Cemetery, but there are three more places on campus that I read on the Little House of Horrors website that I am going to talk about. The first being Wilson Hall, which according to the Ohio University website, was built in 1965 and services as a residence for students. Referencing the Little House of Horrors website, apparently Wilson Hall was built on an old Indian burial ground, which, for so many reasons, is a big old red flag. Not only for the aspect of respect, but from numerous paranormal stories we may know that once something says something is built on a former Indian burial ground, it basically means you're cursed. It means there's going to be some paranormal activity happening and you might as well just, like, just avoid it. Just avoid it at all costs. Yeah, choices were made. It was bad choices bad choices. With that notion, it sounds as if people have reportedly seen apparitions, heard disembodied voices, and doors slamming in the building, primarily on the fourth floor. I don't know why specifically the fourth floor. However, that's what I read on the interweb. I would hope as a student that my residence room is not on that floor. Absolutely. I, if... Could you imagine just being told, yeah, you're going to be in the Wilson Hall, and oh, by the way, your room is on the fourth floor. I would transfer schools so fast i wouldn't even care how much money i've spent i'd be like you know what Mm, it's gonna be a no for me dog i'm going to california bye (laughs) california or be like "Mm, i'm just gonna get off campus housing thanks okay you can give me yeah i'd rather pay an arm and a leg than you know have to deal with shadow people on a regular basis or hear doors slamming with nobody else on the floor doing it do you know what i mean i just mm, i'm not not here for it no thank you No, thank you. The next spot is the Convocation Center, which was built in 1968. According to the Little House of Horrors website, a resident assistant was murdered by her boyfriend in the Convocation Center, and therefore some suspect that RA is the apparition found hanging around the corridors. I did try and Google search for more clarification of this incident, in which I did stumble upon a news messenger article from October 11th, 1982. The article stated that then 20-year-old Lisa Garrett was reportedly stabbed at the Convocation Center and that a Squire Lovelace had been charged with murder. Based on what I read in another article, it looks 
like Squire was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. She ain't out here killing people on campus. Yeah, not good. Another spooky report that comes from the Convocation Center is supposedly a student died in their sleep there, and now people claim to feel the embrace of someone while they're trying to sleep. This one, I had a hard time finding any identifying information, so I'm going to suspect it's local lore. However, if anyone has any further information about it, please send it our way. The last building I'm going to talk about is Washington Hall. Washington Hall is a dorm that was opened on campus in 1955. According to the Little House of Horrors website, the dorm is supposedly haunted by a former high school basketball team who died in a car accident after visiting the campus. Claims of running feet and bouncing basketballs have been heard, although I wasn't able to find any news articles at a quick glance to verify that this incident happened. However, Apparently, people experience what sounds to be a basketball team running through the entire building. So whether it's real or not, that just sounds annoyingly terrifying. And specifically a basketball team. Like, if you're hearing things, how do you know it's that? It could be anything. Well, I'm going to assume if it sounds like a basketball, it might be a basketball. Unless Okay, I- they're bouncing a ball, yes. Yeah, but they're bouncing people a ball. running, you're like, what the fuck is that? Well, yeah, and I just, I don't know. It's just, it's very specific. I wasn't able to find any article or anything that said anything about a traveling basketball team that had died in a car accident after visiting Athens. So I I don't want to say it's not true, but I haven't seen the receipts. You can leave it up to your own imagination. Yeah. So for aspiring paranormal seekers or those who are just curious to see the former Athens Lunatic Asylum, a.k.a. The Ridges, or other buildings at Ohio University, it's going to be a bit harder to explore than you might assume. According to multiple websites, there are seasonal ghost tours that do take place. However, most of the buildings aren't accessible without staff or security permission. And as much as we encourage exploring the world, we always recommend you do so with permission and respect. If you do have any experiences either at the Ridges or in any of the other buildings on campus, we want to hear about it. So please email it to us at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com and that is the athens lunatic asylum aka what sounds to be a really haunted hot spot in athens ohio yeah i don't know if it'd be my first place to go to school but better quilts your boat I'm actually surprised that I have not gotten any Ohio University ads, like sponsored ads, because I kept looking on their website. But to be continued, who knows? Maybe now that I'm talking about it out loud, all my devices will start sending me ads to go to Ohio University. You know that uh, new uh, meta app or whatever oh, the fuck oh, is going to fill your feed with some Ohio probably. shit. Yeah, thanks, Zuckerberg. You know what's not annoying like Mark Zuckerberg, though? Your resources. Absolutely. My resources, they're not annoying. They're just amazing. So big old shout out to the Legends of America website, the live science article, Lobotomy, Definition, Procedure, and History by Tanya Lewis, which was posted on Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. The Esquire article, The True Story of Billy Milligan, the first ever defendant found not guilty due to multiple personalities by Lauren Crank on September 22nd, 2021. The Murder Murder News article, What Happened to Margaret Schilling by Claire Milano, February 19th, 2021. And just a shout out to Murder Murder News in general because they do have a podcast. So you should go check that out for all of your true crime needs. 
big old thank you to the YouTube video, The Athens Insane Asylum, Poltergeist Caught on Film at 1715, uploaded by Alex Vaughn Music on May 10th, 2016. The Haunted Journeys website, created by Maria Pond Schmidt and Bob Schmidt. Athens Lunatic Asylum, added May 24th, 2020, updated June 14th, 2021. The Ohio University Building Directory, as well as their virtual tour page. The News Messenger article, Student Stabbed to Death, No Author Listed, October 11th, 1982. The Akron Beacon Journal, Man Gets Life Term in Ohio, You Slaying, No Author Listed, December 8th, 1982. The Only in Your State website, and you know this is going to be a long title, so bear with me. Six truly terrifying ghost stories that prove Athens is the most haunted city in Ohio by April Dre, posted on April 21st, 2016. The Little House of Horrors website, the Athens Lunatic Asylum, aka The Ridges, created by Sonia on October 20th, 2021. The Soul of Athens website, and last but absolutely not least, the Paranorms website article, The Tragic Tale of Margaret Schilling and the Athens Lunatic Asylum by Alexandria Duxworth in May 2021. Now, Christy, can you tell our fine listeners where they can support the show, how they can support the show, and just all the good stuff that you do at the end of every episode? Yes, over to me now. So where to find us, as always, if you don't know where, but hopefully you do because you listen to us. But if not, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods. There's a variety of different platforms that you listen to podcasts on. You mostly get a search for your distraction. You shall find us most likely. If you're on Apple, please go on. Please feel free to give us a review, some kind of reading of sorts, just to kind of give that a little free boost of helping out your pod friends. We also have other media pages to find us on. So we are on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, just searching for your distractions, we will appear. If you're looking for some more content from us, we have our Patreon. So getting on there, getting some bonus episodes, um, getting early access to most of our episodes, extra stickers, stuff like that. Go on to Patreon. We have the two tiers. It's a monthly thing. Check it out. Giving a shout out to our current patrons. We have Tom, Bailey, Angela, and John. So thank you guys so much for going on there. Thank you. We love you. Alex's love you tidbit as always and if you want to help with the show in other monetized ways other than Patreon we are on buy me a coffee give a little sprinkle here and there also going on to Redbubble do looking up our merch again searching weird distractions you can find any graphic that we've made on most items that you might possibly be looking for especially for Christmas now coming up since Halloween is over that's super depressing and lastly we want to hear from you please send in your stories any scary incident you had or run in with a serial killer or a person in general yes and if you need a distraction we got you bye, bye.